All right. Well, welcome everyone. Hey. Hey. Uh, so we've been going through James, and we finished just shy last week of chapter one. So we're going to go ahead and pick up where we where we ended off with verses twenty six and twenty seven, and then we're going to go ahead and move right into chapter two. And so, what James has been speaking of here at the end of chapter one, specifically. Is he's been he's been emphasizing the importance of being doers of the word and not merely hearers. So he's been telling people to take the word of God that they're hearing to the logical end, the logical conclusion, which is which is to actually do what it says. So that's what James has been speaking of. Um, and we even we even saw what what a lot of people consider to be the crux of this entire epistle was verse twenty two where he very clearly says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So a lot of people say like that that's probably the, the, um, a good summary statement of this whole, this whole passage, this whole book that he's been writing. So now what James is going to do in verses 26 and 27, he's going to move into three specific applications of this teaching of being a true doer of the word. Right, and I say he's speaking of being a true doer of the word, which is just as opposed to someone who, like verse 22 says, who deludes themselves. And verse 26 is going to say who deceives themselves. So there's a true doer of the word that he's speaking of. And the first application of, of this being a true doer of the word is in verse 26. And verse 26 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious... And yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. So, James' James's first example here of being a true doer of the word is one who thinks that he's religious. He thinks that he's religious. So this man probably, probably hears the word and, and, and is in the congregation, even does pious acts that, that he would consider religious. But the man does not bridle his tongue. The, the, the bridling of the tongue is speaking of the bridle that goes in the horse's mouth. So his, his tongue is wild. His tongue has not been tamed. And I just wanted to, to point out that, that James doesn't here specifically point out like what type of, of sins are, are coming out of his mouth. It just says that his, his tongue is not tamed. Um, and James, in, in the next chapter, chapter 3, is going gonna, is gonna to speak a lot to the, the, the sin of, of what comes out of the mouth. But suffice it to say for now, is James is saying that this, the sin of the tongue and not being able to tame your tongue is no small error. It's no small thing. And, and just like I tried to point out, that this is the third time so far in just one chapter that James is speaking about deceiving yourself self-deception thinking that you're religious thinking that you're a Christian but not truly being a Christian and so to mention that three times already in the first chapter to, to, to speak of these people who are deceiving themselves I think is a, is a very significant thing to point out and to grasp is that um, there are those in the church who are deceiving themselves <clears throat> And what James is saying, especially with that, that verse 22 that kind of summarizes the, the epistle, is he's saying, prove yourself to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer only. 
therefore deceiving yourselves. So it's by our actions that the whole epistle, the whole book, James is saying, prove yourself to be truly a Christian. And the only way you can do that is by your actions. It doesn't matter what you think, if you think you're religious, or if you think you're a Christian, or if you tell people you have faith. Without actions that line up to a biblical Christian, you're you're deceiving yourself. And so I think, especially with this whole epistle, I think what God is doing, God in His grace is basically reaching down with texts like this and shaking the false convert, saying, wake up, stop deceiving yourself. You know, your life is not lining up to what you're professing. And that's, and that's just the grace of God that, that does that. I know he did that with me with 1 Corinthians 6, 9, where the same language was used. I read 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, Do not deceive yourselves, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. No drunkard, no blasphemer, no adulterer, all of these things. I mean, it... It shook me and woke me up. And so I think that's what James is trying to do, the same thing. He's trying to wake people up to examine themselves. And so I think that the call goes just like it does in Paul's writings to examine yourselves to make sure you're in the faith. And so because the text does it, I'll call us to do it as well. Because what could be worse? What could be worse than doing all of this here your entire life You know, thinking that you're a Christian, doing whatever it is you do in the name of the Lord, um, and then showing up on that day expecting just to waltz into heaven, expecting to be greeted by Christ Himself, expecting the crown of life that we talked about. I I can't even barely think of that moment of those people who are going to walk up, Lord, Lord, you know, and Christ is going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. There's never going to be a... A moment like that and that 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 moment's going to be for many people and so god forbid it be for us and so god and god with this scripture here is shaking us to say don't let that be you stop deceiving yourselves your your actions must line up and what and and for and this can step on many toes i told you all that james would do that but the sin of the tongue is one of the three examples given and i think a lot of times we can downplay this sin right because everybody does it you know, I do it so much, it can't be that bad. You know, I just constantly fail in this way. Um, but this is one of the three examples that, that James gives of someone who's deceiving themselves. And it says the religion is worthless. Right? So that, that's just showing us the seriousness of the sin of not being able to tame the tongue. Um, I pointed out that he doesn't hear specifically name what type of sin is coming out of the tongue he he will he will as i said in chapter three go on to speak about the 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 sin of the sin of uh what comes out of the tongue and the only i just wanted to point out the only specific example he's even going to give in chapter three he's talking about how how sinful the, the the tongue is how it can destroy how it can set up a flame all of this this um imagery of how bad the tongue can be but the only specific example he gives of a sin of the tongue is cursing others right that's the specific example he's going to give us in chapter three is cursing others and that may be something we find easy to do it may be just a slight of someone you know a a slight of of a christian or even a non-christian in 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 chapter three verse nine when he speaks of cursing others he doesn't specify that you're just cursing other Christian brothers. He says that the fault in cursing people 
is that they're made in the image of God. So that would include anyone. If you curse anyone, if you speak um, unrighteously about anyone, you're cursing someone who's made in the image of God, and that's that's a sin that will, will incur the judgment. I believe this is saying. So I think just to bring this home, I know in my mind when I think sins of the tongue, I think of my coworkers, right? These people who claim Christ, who even may have a Bible on their desk at work, but the constant cussing, the constant blasphemy, the constant obscenity, I mean, every word you can imagine, that's what comes to my mind. And I just every day think, man, these guys, your religion is worthless. You guys are literally deceiving yourselves. I've literally given this passage to a guy at work, which which he which he we he accepted, you know, almost like he had never seen it before. But um, that's what comes to my mind. But like I said, James doesn't specify cussing, and so I do want to bring it home to myself and to us is that there is there is many things that we can do with the mouth besides just cussing or besides even just cursing someone. And some examples I, that I put was grumbling, right? The scripture, I mean, God hates the grumbler, you know, that he condemns Israel for grumbling many times and, and judges them for it. Complaining, lying, worldliness, Ephesians 4, crude joking, right? These things would all, would all make up the life of someone who is thinking they may be religious, but is deceiving themselves, and so that's the scariest place you can be. And so be not deceived. What comes out of the mouth is the outflow of what's in your heart. So we should test ourselves with this first example that James gives us. A second and third aspect going on of being a true doer of the word is mentioned in verse 27. He gives us two aspects here of being a true doer. Verse 27, James says, Pure and undefiled religion... In the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so the, sep- the second example <coughs> I want to look at is he says to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And I think this is a good example for him to give, especially at the time that they were at, is that th- these people were helpless. The, the widows and the orphans were, were utterly helpless. Here in America, you know, the government's pretty much going to take care of anyone. So I think there's a, a greater um, point that we can take away from this. But it, it may be this, that it's very easy, as James Point's been the whole time, to talk a religious game. To come to church, talk religious game, do religious things, help out at the church, um, do whatever it is that you do that you think is, is religious... And it may all be to impress others. It may be to impress the elders, to convince your wife that you're a Christian, to whatever it is, to, to just be liked by other people in this club that it is your, that you call your church. Um, but it's quite another thing to do acts that you cannot be repaid for. And I think these are good examples. Like I said, the widows, widows and orphans were, were poor people normally. I mean, the widow couldn't work the field like a man could, that the orphan doesn't have anyone. These are people that can't help you in return. And so I think we can take away just this, this picture of, of doing works that are before God and for God, not man. 
And there's many ways that we can do that. Um, it w- even specifically orphans and widows, because I know they're out there. But the, the poor, the helpless, when, when you see them on the street corner, when you see them when you're doing out evangelism, not to forget these, these people, and especially if nobody's looking. Because these good works that he's speaking of are things that, that only God can repay you for. And so it takes a faith that is real, that is looking forward to the, the rewards that God will give on that day, and not just rewards here and now. Right? Um, I've made, I think that it's similar to, as Jesus said, that God will reward the prayer that, that's in the closet, that no one can see or hear. It's similar to that, in that only God can hear that prayer, only God's seeing you do it, nobody's thinking you're, you're more spiritual because they don't know that you're doing it. You're praying in, by, in a closet by yourself. God will hear that. God will honor that. And in the same way, a real religion does things that only God can see and that only he can repay. Right? So that's another aspect of a true religion. And so I'll just leave it to yourselves to think, you know, are there, are there things that, that I do that I do for God and God alone? You know, or, or when those opportunities come up, do I not do them because nobody's seeing? Right? I've heard somebody say, um, you should never trust in, your, in, in the things that you do that, that people are able to see. Never put any, any, um, any weight to the things that you do in front of other people as far as you're standing before God because everyone does things to be seen. And so only the things that you do that aren't seen, that only God sees, will really be the, the, the telltale signs of whether your religion is true or false. You know, your prayer life, these types of things, your service when nobody's looking, when it's just you and that homeless guy and nobody else is there, do you reach out? That's a true religion, James says. And so test yourselves with that. The third example that he gives is in the same verse. The third example of, of being a, a, a good doer of the word, a true doer, is keeping oneself unstained by the world. Now that's, that's huge, and that's all he says. He doesn't specify anything else about, about that as well. So I just ask the question, what are the things of this fallen world that could stain the, question, that could, that could stain the Christian? And I, I do kind of leave that open. Uh, what comes to mind, because he doesn't specify, what kind of things... Would he be speaking of here? Keep yourself unstained from the world. In the in the New Testament context, or like today? Um, maybe let's do them first, and then we'll go from there. Because I, I, I don't know that many of them would be different. But you know true. what I mean? It's true. Um, yeah. Uh, probably going to the Colosseum, watching the the fights, the gladiator fights, and and not participating in that because mm-hmm. it was just barbaric. The killing, the the killing for sport, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a good thing. So entertainment, just wicked entertainment. Not entertainment in itself, but the killing for entertainment and killing of Christians for entertainment. What you watch, what you hear. Mm-hmm. What you watch and what you hear. That's how I put it. Because I said these temptations usually come through the senses, the eyes and the ears. That's exactly, that's exactly how I put it. Um, so what else? I mean, for me, just right off the bat has always been television has been big to me what are you watching on the television right because even if you're not trying to watch something bad you have to guard yourself you constantly 
I mean, I know when, when I've gone to Emilio's house to watch the Lakers game, DVR, skip over the commercials. You know what I mean? Skip over the halftime show. We're here to watch a basketball game, not everything, not everything else. And so that's a good example of, I mean, that's a benefit that we have in technology is that, boom, you can skip the commercials. You can, you can skip the halftime shows, right? So that, that would be a way to keep yourself unstained from the world. Right, Oprah. So that that may be not so much visually um, staining, but the things that they're saying and promoting, the philosophies and the, the influence, the influence that comes from there is gonna it's gonna stain you. It's gonna stain you. It's gonna you may not think that it's changing your mindset, but if that's all you listen to, it's gonna influence you. The things that you used to find offensive and you knew were ungodly all of a sudden become, oh, well, you know, everybody's doing it. Everybody. Every famous person you see come on Oprah fully agrees with her, and therefore now all of a sudden it's not as bad. I have a question about the black and whiteness of the statement, and I just throw it out to everybody. Mm-hmm. It says to keep yourselves unstained from the world. That's, that, that verse does not have a lot of leeway, a lot of play. It says do this. Mm-hmm. And I'm just... Because, I, again, I'm, I ask questions that I'm thinking about them for me, but I'd love to get y'all's input. How much play do you give that? God has said this, but then in your mind, do you, do, does it shift? Does, does, that, does the ground shift underneath you? You see what I'm saying? I'm just wondering how you guys feel about that. Are you, you mean, like, are you convicted in that area when you think it's not a sin, but others might? Before that. Does it get to? Do do you? I mean, uh, I mean, whatever. Um, like, if you're watching TV, do you just watch the commercials and not pay attention to it? You become numb. I think Is that it, when you I become think, numb? I think you become numb to it eventually. As Christians, you know, you know, I think it's pretty black and white. What is godly? What is ungodly? What would God want us to look at? What would God want us to hear? You know, and then another, the other question, you think, well, do you think this would be in heaven? I mean, mm-hmm. what do you think Jesus would think if he was sitting right there? So I think after so much to the point, and to me, it can almost become an excuse for the Christian where, well, I don't pay attention to that. And, you know, subconsciously, you are. And I think it's just because you become numb to it. The more you surround yourself, the more you watch it, the more you hear it, more to sin, and um, that's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, definitely. yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely testify to that. <laughs> you know? Tell them on yourself, are you? But by the grace of God, you right. know, he, he pulls you out, right. and, you know, we truly belong to him. You'll, you'll be convicted eventually. Um, yeah, I so, so I think, yeah, I agree, totally with everything that you're saying and I think this is kind of the other side of it is that the world is unavoidable in some senses but what he's telling us to do is do what you can to guard yourself from that right because I I think of the John 17 where Jesus is praying to the father where he says I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one so the whole reality is yes you're going to be in the world it's going to be unavoidable that these things are going to 
you're going to see things. You're going to hear things. Guard yourself. Keep yourself unstained. And it's your job to do it. You can't just give up. You know, there's definitely a fight. Because, right, this is an example of somebody... I think this is this is pretty much it. This is an example of the difference between somebody who's a real Christian and somebody who's not. Is one of these things, the third the third thing is do you keep yourself unstained from the world or do you just see everything that the world sees? Do you listen to everything that the world listens to? Do you go to the places that the world goes to? And do you still think that you're different? Or like it, maybe it's not staining you. I mean, so this is a this is a sign of the reality of, of regeneration, somebody who fears the Lord and does not want to be stained and will put up roadblocks and not be stained. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So I, so I think, going back to what we talked about last time, where it's your sinful desires that get impregnated by temptations and then lead to sin. So our job is to, to cut off, to cut that off at some point. And, and so he would be saying, cut off the things that you know may get you Right, and that's where I think there's leeway. I mean, you talk about black and white. Um, some people may be able to go do evangelism at UNT where there's a lot of um, scantily clad ladies. Some people may not be able to do that. Right, so there's black and white. You know what I mean? Um, so, so not everything is black and white in that sense. You must know what your temptations are and what your, and you just got to be honest because God knows. You know, God knows. Um. So let's go on, but that, that's good. So, so having spoken of the word of truth and, and the different aspects of what makes somebody a true doer of, of this word of truth in chapter 1, let's go on to chapter 2. Because here, what James is going to get into is the faith that comes out of this word of truth. He's, he's only mentioned it as the word, the word of truth, but now we're going to see the faith specifically that comes out of this word of truth. And so chapter 2, verse 1, James says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And so the first and the most important aspect of the faith is the object of of our faith. The most important aspect of this faith, this faith that comes out of the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, the most important thing and the first thing he mentions is what is the object of our faith. It says the object of our faith is in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a Christian statement if I've ever heard one because what higher language could James use of Jesus Christ than this? The glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses a very similar expression when speaking of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 1.8. And for me... I mean, I, I don't know when it. Well, 1 Corinthians one eight was pointed out to me within the year, as far as being as significant as now I see it because of how it describes Jesus Christ. Just like this text here is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If there's any doubt of James's view or the New Testament's view or the Bible's view on Jesus, he's the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That to me, that's a faith strengthening verse. There, just knowing how the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ, he's the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But flip over, because I think it's worth pointing out, it's worth knowing that, that James, as well as Paul, speak of Jesus Christ in this type of way. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Maybe it's easy to remember. First, the, very first, the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians, in verse 8. 
Wait, that's not right. Maybe it's 2.8. Yeah, it's 2.8. 1 Corinthians 2.8. Look at the language that, that Paul uses of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, he says, he's been speaking of God's wisdom that's been revealed. This mystery that's been revealed, it says in verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory is who they crucified. And so, just as James uses this exalted language, I, I would say couldn't be any more exalted language of Jesus Christ. This is who our New Testament presents Jesus Christ as. The Lord of glory. Just like the Old Testament, in the Psalms, he's called the King of glory. Psalm 29, it says, The voice of the Lord, the voice of Yahweh is upon the water. The God of glory thunders. Right? Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of glory. And here, Jesus Christ is the, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so James, there's no doubt that he's giving the attributes of, of deity and recognizing the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And so, as I said, the most important aspect of, of our faith is the object of our faith. And it's not just, the, the object of our faith is not just in some, some abstract theological doctrines or beliefs over here. It's in a person. It's in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's the object of our faith. And so in typical James fashion, we get a mention of the theology, right? We get a mention of the object of our faith and his gloriousness. And then he's right back into the workings out of the faith. That's how James does it. So right away, we're back into the outworkings of this faith where we are told not to hold our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And James in verse 2 is going to describe just how this personal favoritism might play out in the church. And how it probably, I think how it probably was, as we go on we'll see that it, how it probably was playing out in these early churches. In verse 2, he says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And so the glorious one who is to be made much of and who is to be exalted and, and, be, given, and be given the fine place in our worship is the Lord Jesus Christ, not one of his creatures who just so happens to have been given riches by Jesus Christ. Right? And I think as, as easy and natural as it seems for this to happen, or it, it seems very easy for this, for this to take place, even, even in our church, maybe it seems very natural to, to, to have the rich man and the well-dressed man and the prominent man come in and just to be drawn to them naturally. Um, James is immediately going to state the reality of the matter. He says in verse 4, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Evil motives. And so making distinctions between each other based on things such as your financial state or, or outward appearances, which is what he's, he's generally talking of, judging by, by people's outward appearance, um, it's called evil. That's the seriousness of, of the offense, is that it's evil. 
because we know what Galatians 3.28 says, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither, neither male nor female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And we kind of looked at that truth in chapter 1 when we saw, when we were talking about the rich and the poor, how the poor man, the poor man is an adopted son of God. He can glory in that. Um, and so James is going to go on even more to reason with the churches who are showing this favoritism. He's going to continue to reason with them, and he's going to explain why this is so evil. And he does it in verse 5 here with a very pastoral tone. He says, Listen, my beloved brethren. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And so James's point is, in God's sovereign election, he's chosen the poor. God's chosen the poor, but we want to choose the rich. Right? So where's our reasoning off there? God wants to exalt the poor and saving them, but we still want to exalt the rich. Chris? Yes, ma'am. Uh, but you're not saying that all poor people are rich in faith. No, I'm not. <laughs> right? Let's... And so, and so this is what I said right here. This is my next verse. It says, it's well worth turning to 1 Corinthians one twenty six to see the full picture. First, let's, let's turn there. 1 Corinthians one twenty six because we're going to see how this works out from God's perspective. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Would Does somebody want to read it? Does somebody want to read all the way, verse 26 through 31? Will somebody read that for us? Has anybody got that? Yeah. Go ahead. Excuse me. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak <coughs> things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the, and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not. So that, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, that him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right, thank you. Um, so, so I almost attacked it from the opposite end, because in my mind I thought, um, is he saying that that the rich aren't saved, maybe. But, but here, Paul points out that, that there was not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And so I was first trying to ru rule out the misconstrued idea that, that God only saves the poor, right? That he only saves the poor. But, but we know, uh, we looked at a text in 1 Timothy chapter 6 in speaking about the rich, the rich people in the chapter 1 that there's instructions for the rich people in the church. That, that they're supposed to honor God with their money, that they should be rich in good deeds, be generous. So the rich are there, right? So we know that, that, that God's saving the poor and God's saving the rich, both. And even, and I pointed out last time, that even the rich people that were in the church, God didn't tell them to give, give all your money away and be like the poor so you can be rich in faith, you know, these types of things. They're both there and they both have a purpose. But I think James is bringing out the purpose specifically of, of God's saving of the poor, and it's the same purpose that, that Paul gave right here, is that, that God's special purpose in, in choosing 
to save more of the poor is that he, his point is that he's displaying his glory to the world. The world who's just like this early churches who had a faulty view of the intrinsic value of the rich. Right? They're lured to them. They're, they're, they're naturally lured to these rich people who intrinsically didn't have anything to offer that the poor people didn't. Um, so God saves the poor so that it'll be nothing of them and all of God so that he gets all the glory. Right? That's, that's why he's doing it. So that God will receive all the boasting is why he's saving so many of these poor. And I also like in verse 5, if you look back at verse 5, that it, it doesn't simply say that, that God's saving the poor. It doesn't simply say that he, that he saves them, but that it actually says that they're rich in faith. Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And so for my mind in the Second Corinthians context, I just thought, what a, what a light and temporary affliction to be a poor Christian is. It's a light and temporary affliction compared to the benefits of being a saved poor person. Because they're going to be rich in faith. To be the poor Christian here is, is said to be rich in faith. So you have the benefit of being rich in faith in the life now and to be an heir of the kingdom in the age to come. So it's a great place to be. It's not a bad place to be a poor Christian. So let's get back to James's explanation here of this sin of partiality. In verse 6, he says, You've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And so these statements, these statements are, would be shameful to hear from James if you were this church who was, who was committing the sin of partiality. And James is trying to show them how irrational it is to be showing favor to these rich people. Because James says that these rich people, and this is why I said I think it's more than hypothetical. He says right here that these rich oppress you and personally drag you into court. So this is something that sounds like was happening. These rich folks were abusing the, the wealth and money that they had that was probably very easy for them to prosecute and do lawyers and this type of thing. They're fully persecuting these Christians. And the Christians still favor them. So, so to James, this is illogical. It's, it's not, it doesn't make sense why they would do this. Um, also in the text, these rich people just didn't offend the Christians. But in verse 7 it says, Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And so they don't only offend the Christians, but they're blaspheming the name of Christ. They're blaspheming the name of Christ, and these, and these Christians are still, despite their blasphemy of the one who called them, are still pampering these, these rich. And so I think as in chapter 1 we tried to get to the, the roots of, of sin issues. What would be the root, what would be the sinful desire inside of these Christians that would still, despite the oppression, despite the blaspheming of Christ, why would they still be pampering and showing partiality to these rich. What, what would be the root? What sinful desire is being tempted? Greed. Greed. Obviously, they, they want the benefits of these rich people. And it doesn't matter what these rich people have done. That they're still willing to, to lay out the red carpet. And, and maybe that's not as bad that they, 
that the worst thing is not that they were just being or showing pampering to the rich, but that they were ignoring the poor. So the contrast is there. Um, and so I think just in case some of these, these Christians in these churches may have thought that they were obeying the scriptures by favoring the rich in these ways, you know, they probably reason to themselves and rationalize in their minds, well, I'm doing what the scriptures said. I'm, I'm showing love to these rich people. James says this to answer that thinking in verse 8 and 9. He says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so James quotes to this church, Leviticus 19.18, which they would all know very well. James calls it the royal law. He calls this commandment part of the royal law, which could be translated either the kingly law or the law of the king. Or in, in our case, we certainly know it's the law of the king of kings. But we see how high of a view that James has of the scriptures. James has called it the word of truth in chapter 1. He called it the word implanted, which is able to save your souls in verse 21. He calls it the perfect law in verse 25, the law of liberty. So James has the utmost view of the scriptures. And so he's calling the church to this holy standard, which is the scriptures. And he's saying this, this sin may seem like a very small misjudgment on your part. You may think you just misjudged, miscalculated on how to show love, but it's no minor infraction. It's actually sin. And, and, the, and the problem with it is that it's a breaking of God's law. And so lastly, lastly, let's just look here at verse 10 and 11, because James is going to show them the absolute holy standard of God's law, and in doing so, he's going to show them the absolute holy standard of of, of God himself. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so the, these, these Christians have, have obviously downplayed in their minds, they've rationalized their favoritism. And James is, about to, is, James is raising the bar on their outlook of the scriptures and, and more importantly, the God of the scriptures. That's what he's doing. So the reasoning here is if you break one law, you, it's, it's, it's as if you've broken them all. Because it's, as we said earlier, it's not as if you've just broken just some arbitrary set of rules. You break God's rules. And so the offense is against God himself. And so if you're going to disobey God in one area, it's just like you're, you're, you're putting away the authority of God. That's, that's what's so bad about it. That's what's so bad about sin is it's who you're sinning against. You're spurning the authority of Almighty God. And so these churches, and we're not allowed to pick and choose what it is that we will obey of God. To not obey all of God's commands is an infinite offense against God personally and and we'll end there